Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today, another tactical review podcast. But first, let's talk about what today represents. Today is September 11th. I mean, by the time you hear this, it might be the 12th, but today is the 11th. So on this day, which was a Tuesday, September 11th of 2001, 19 terrorists decided to hijack a series of planes. These were 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists from Saudi Arabia decided to hijack a plane. They killed 2,996 people, injuring over 6,000. They did about $10 billion in infrastructure and property damage. And then additionally, people have died since then of 9-11 related cancer and respiratory diseases in the months and years following the attacks, including right now. Four passenger airliners operated by two major U.S. passenger air carriers, which was United Airlines and American Airlines, or or American uh, Airlines, all departed from airports in northeast United States bound for San Francisco and L.A. and were hijacked by these these 19 terrorists. Two of the planes, uh, American Airlines Flight 11 and Flight 175, were crashed into the north and south towers, respectively. The World Trade Center... Uh, complex in lower Manhattan, uh, within an hour and 42 minutes, both 110-story towers collapsed. Debris and the resulting fires caused a partial or complete collapse of all other buildings in the World Trade Center complex, including the 47-story 7 World Trade Center tower, as well as significant damage to 10 other large surrounding structures. A third plane, American Airlines Flight 77, was crashed into the Pentagon, the headquarters of the U.S. Department of Defense in Arlington County, Virginia, which led to a partial collapse of the building's west side. And the fourth plane, United Airlines Flight 93, was initially flown towards Washington, D.C., with the intent of hitting something in uh, a significant target in Washington, D.C., but crashed into a field in Stony Creek Township near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, after his passengers stored the hijackers. Um, 9-11 is the single deadliest terrorist attack in human history and the single deadliest incident for firefighters and law enforcement officers in the history of the United States, with 343 police officers and 72... I'm sorry, 343 uh, uh, firefighters and 72 police officers killed. Suspicion quickly fell on Al-Qaeda, On Al-Qaeda, the United States responded by launching the war on terror, invading Afghanistan to depose the Taliban. I mean, our own George Bell, October 19th of 2001, jumped into um, Rhino DZ drop zone with 3rd Ranger Battalion. So things got kicked off aggressively. Many countries strengthened their anti-terrorism legislation, expanded the powers of law enforcement and intelligence agencies to prevent terrorist attacks. All this, the mastermind, Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda's leader. Initially, he he denied any involvement, but in 2004, he claimed responsibility for the attacks. Al-Qaeda and bin Laden cited U.S. support of Israel, the presence of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia, and sanctions against Iraq as motives. After evading capture for almost a decade, bin Laden was located in Pakistan and killed by a Navy Special Warfare Group um, in May of 2011. The destruction of the World Trade Center and nearby infrastructures seriously harmed the economy of lower Manhattan and had a significant effect on global markets. Um, But we all know what this attack led to in the global war on terror. I remember personally where I was at. I mean, I had just served four years in the U.S. Army as an infantryman. I was in Fayetteville Technical Community College on uh, 9-11. And I was actually, I had the week prior to 9-11, I had actually just fully got out of the active duty component of the U.S. Army. And my original ETS or get out of Army date was September 3rd of 2001. I transitioned into 30, uh, 30th Heavy Armor Separate Brigade where I was a team leader in the National Guard. And I was going to college anticipating to get my college degree um, and potentially serve in federal law enforcement. At the time, I believe I wanted to go into the FBI or CIA. After that happened, I remember that day, I was actually in class at the time 
um, and then went to the cafeteria where I watched the events unfold. Immediately, I went to my next class and told the teacher I wouldn't be able to make it, and I immediately went home. I picked up the phone and I called my chain of command in the National Guard and said, what are we doing? I even actually remember taking my battle dress camouflage uniform and putting it, putting it inside the washer and dryer and packing my duffel bag, preparing myself for war. What I didn't realize is because I was in the National Guard, nothing was really going to happen. I spent the remainder of about six months fighting to get back in the U.S. military. In fact, I went to the U.S. Army recruiter and tried to get back in, and they were giving me a hard time. They actually weren't giving me dates. They said it was a slow process, and I think the Army was just trying to figure it out because there were many men like me and many women like me who were trying to get back in the military and join to fight for the country because they knew the significance of what just took place. Long story short, I winded up um, almost going into the Air Force as a combat controller, but last minute, the Army called and said they had a date for me, and I went in basically as an 18 X-ray. I went straight into selection, Special Forces Assessment and Selection, where I was selected and started the Special Forces Qualification course in 2002. Uh, when I was in the Q course, we were invading Afghanistan. At the end of the Q course, we we would be invading Iraq. And then uh, as soon as I got out, I was in Afghanistan two weeks later, and the rest is history. On another note, uh, outside the tragedy of the uh, men and women, the innocent men and women who were killed on 9-11-2001, there's another 9-11 that I want to talk about real quickly. 9-11... 2012, uh, Benghazi, Libya, fell apart. Uh, Ambassador Stevens, uh, one of the uh, analysts, um, Glenn Doherty and Tyrone Woods that were global response staff officers for the CIA were killed um, in an attack by Al-Qaeda in Libya. Uh, at the time, I was actually at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, I was a master sergeant in special forces, and I was also the team lead of the AFRICOM Commanders and Extremist Force, which we just stood up. My job was basically counter uh, terrorist operations and crisis response for the entire continent of Africa, including working with Special Operations Command Africa and Joint Special Operations Command to counter um, and react to any counterterrorism event on the continent. The day or the morning of September 11th of 2012, I actually was at U.S. Army Special Operations Command headquarters uh, where I was supposed to do a VTC with one of the teams that was in Libya, including uh, State Department officials and DOD officials. Obviously, that did not happen. Uh, during the night, an attack took place where the ambassador was attacked. Um, GRS responded as well as DOD assets, and we were spun up. Uh, we actually got spun up at 10th Special Forces Group and were prepared to deploy. I spent the next week um, after that doing cross uh, key leader engagements, cross talks and key leader engagements to hash out what the plan was going to be. Um, I palletized my stuff and infiltrated into the country about uh, three weeks later in October of uh, 2012. Our job was to stand up a counterterrorism force, a surrogate's counterterrorism force, and do some other things. I, t I talked about it in a post, and I'll mention it here today. I do understand, um, I do understand politics, and I understand the effects of policy on operations all the way down to the tactical level, the guy on the ground, because I was that guy on the ground. Uh, I operated with U.S. Army Special Operations Command where we identified the guys responsible for killing Ambassador Stevens, Tyrone Woods, and Glenn Doherty, and the analyst. Um, and we were denied the operation 
to be able to go kill capture those guys that were responsible. I was in the meeting when it happened. Uh, they told us that the political climate wouldn't allow it, and we were just told to stand down. It was the second time that I was told to stand down in a short period of time. The third time, which was my final strike in the U.S. Army, was when um, another terrorist by the name of the Marlboro Man uh, conducted a um, seize of an oil refinery in Algeria. Again, I kitted up, my, my guys kitted up, and we were prepared to do a joint operation and go rescue hostages, which was our mission. Not only was I denied at the local level, meaning the commander that I was working with in Libya at the time, but I also was denied by my higher chain of command. I was basically told to stand down again while Americans died. So I take it really personal. One, uh, for anybody to question my expertise on this because I've lived it. Um, Two, for anybody who doesn't understand the effects of policy and politicians, crooked politicians, uh, and the effects they have transcending uh, second and third order effects on the people around them, especially the military. Because of politics, we decided not to do anything about Al-Qaeda in Libya at the time. And what happened after a void was created when Gaddafi fell, we created another void and just packed our shit and left. I have a lot of strong feelings about this circumstance because I was there for a long extended period of time and saw all the potential of the things that we could have done right, but we did so much wrong. So I want to say, you know, thank you to the men and women um, who defend our rights, our freedoms overseas that lie in the shadows who you'll never know about. These guys and gals conduct operations every single night that will never be talked about and discussed that protect us where we live, ensuring that there's not another 9-11. The global war on terror, JSOC's relentless pursuit of finding, fixing, killing, and capturing bad guys is part of Uh, one element of a large, broad strategic policy and tactic uh, that is allowing us to be safe today. There's been a lot of attacks that were um, near the scale of 9-11 that have been prevented, but again, you'll never hear about them. I just want to say uh, prayers go out to the the victims, the family, and the friends of the victims uh, who are obviously in mourning today. I posted on Philcraft Survival, a video uh, of my representation of how we should look at uh, this situation in mourning. We should obviously mourn those that are lost and pay respect, uh, but we should also remember what this did to reinvigorate, uh, to energize and fuel um, our pursuit of these Muslim extremists all over the world. And any oppressor, um, you know, our motto uh, it's on one of our shirts that I've always believed in because I worked in special operations is oppressors beware. And not only do we free the oppressed, but if you're an oppressor and you're somebody who you know thinks you're the big boy in the block and likes to pick on people, then you're going to pay for that. And um, I posted that video because I want people to remember that we didn't let that go. Um, we just didn't let that slide. Thank God we had a president at the time uh, that believed and, you know, his values and those of the country. And he didn't hesitate or waste time to tell a whole bunch of people um, in different roles and positions to go over and start smashing bad guys. Uh, we, we are here still in Afghanistan, still in Iraq, and occupying battle space all over the world. I get asked, uh, asked often, is, is this necessary? And I think it is. You know, especially the global pursuit of terrorists all over the world. That's what keeps us safe. Those men and women who I serve with in special operations and the new ones that are coming up, um, their job, their role, and um, defending our country overseas is very important and is necessary. It's so necessary. All right, guys. Hey, I want to want to focus on the tactical review podcast. What I like to do on these is talk about obviously tactics that are going on, things that I've been thinking about questions that I get um, since our last tactical review and focus on the tactics and then the conversation. Um, 
you know, I get asked a lot of questions in between these podcasts. I try to prioritize them and then I try to flush out a lot of ideas that I've been thinking about. One, I don't know if you guys have started to track what we're doing, but I'm starting to do webinars because I realize not everybody can fly out to Prescott, Arizona because I love this place so much. I don't like traveling so too much now. But if you want to get involved, listen to a seminar, listen to Stop the Bleed, you could join one of our webinars on fieldcraftsurvival.com. In fact, the next one is this Saturday, which is September 14th from 9 to noon. And it's my free, uh, typically free survival seminar. I'm making you pay because I have to pay for the software. Uh, we don't make a lot of money on this. But the idea is an interactive seminar where I can engage with you, you can engage with me and ask questions. And uh, it's a lot more engaging than just me doing a live feed. Plus, Instagram, Facebook, and all these other social media platforms aren't too crazy about me teaching you guys to defend yourself, unfortunately. So stay tuned for more of those. But uh, I also wanted to talk about training a little bit. I got to ask a question this morning that I wanted to address. You know, somebody was asking me about um, my opinion on tactical training. And one of the opinions that I have is tactical training should not be strategically and solely aligned with making money. Meaning I shouldn't purposely retain information in order to capitalize on money. Um, The best educators in the world don't do that. They don't give you like the little sliver of information and then provide you with second and third order phases of information at a, at, at a different price point. What I mean by that is, um, to me, it feels dirty for me to not teach you a tactic because I want to make money off of it. So I'm ne- I'll never tell my instructors, Hey, don't tell them that, you know, don't, don't put that out there because we don't want to say that because we could save that, uh, for a next cor- the next version of the course. In fact, some of the, the biggest criticism we get as a company is that we're giving too much information for free. Well, that's just dumb. I mean, it, it's a strategy in itself for me to provide information to you for free. And so I don't need to capitalize on tactics, especially tactics that will potentially save your life. So what is the best protocol for this? Well, one, we teach basic gunfighting skills. You know, I, I talk about it routinely that we break it down into four fundamentals, stance, grip, trigger control, and alignment. These four fundamentals are just like the fundamentals of marksmanship. It's a baseline. So then you ask me, what's the phase two? What's the level two? What's the phase three? What's the level three? It's enhancing your experience by advancing your environment. I always tell people that there is no advanced skill sets. All the skill sets are very basic in the technical application. The advancement of it is performing that basic technical skill set in a more complex environment with more stress, with a more realistic scenario. You know, I always tell people, yeah, it's very easy for you to stand on a flat range or run around on a flat range that you've rehearsed again and again and again. Everybody optimizes their performance and routine. That's, That's easy. But you take that same practice and apply it to a different environment. If you're static and I expect you to perform certain technical skill sets that makes you great, well then let's see what you look like when you're you know, running down a linear target trying to engage bad guys and save good guys. Where you're laying on your side underneath a vehicle trying to apply the same fundamentals. That's more difficult. And then if I add the stress of making it a more realistic scenario that induces stress, then I'm just adding complexities in the environment and not necessarily the technical skill sets. So you ask what level two would be. Well, we have vehicle dynamics because working in and around a vehicle is very important. Most people think that vehicles are ways to defend yourself and they're advantageous in tactics. Well, we teach the opposite. We teach you that it's a bullet magnet and the last thing you should do is suck yourself up on a car. But if all you have is a vehicle, then we need to teach you the tactics to optimize or um, make that vehicle the most optimized method of self-defense, i.e. understanding the strengths and weaknesses, the, the ways in positioning your body in and around the vehicle, you know, technical ways of entering and exiting. 
understanding applied ballistics um, on on the vehicle, on the glass. What happens when you shoot from the A pillar off the passenger side of the vehicle into the driver's side? You know, how does glass affect terminal ballistics? All those things are very important. But again, what changes in the skill set? Nothing. Nothing changes in the basics of the skill set. So the advancement for us for phase two, phase three, phase four, it's enhancing your experience by by taking your basic skill sets and giving you different looks in different environments. Self-defense in your home and in around a vehicle, in stress scenarios, running and gunning. All those are applicable in phasing or uh, doing different levels of tactical training. Also, I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, a couple experiences that I had recently with 511. 511's always been a strategic partner of Fieldcraft Survival. We're working on some big projects for the end of the year that will include some medical equipment that would be offered at 511 stores. You know, 511 is a great company. I had the in, the uh, privilege to uh, interview on a podcast Francisco um, Morales, which is the CEO of 511, and I've worked intimately with their marketing team. Big shout out to Eric at the uh, 511 Marketing. But what I like about 511 is they're big about training and then applying uh, their equipment in that training, getting the best of both worlds. And some project that we were working on recently included med training. And it made me think about our deficiencies in med. You know, there's a lot of people teaching different things in med. You can go get a basic EMT course, basic combat lifesaver, whatever it may be. It's pretty basic. But again, these skill sets aren't advanced. It's, it's all about the basics. And so, when you are looking at doing training, focus on the basics and then the application of those basics in different environments. You know, we teach applying a tourniquet routinely. I do it on a live feed probably once a week. I want you guys to pick up tourniquets, get used to them, and then train yourself, your family, and everybody around you how to use one. Because more than likely, if you're your own casualty, somebody else is around you is going to have to save your life. And you might be unconscious. So does your kid know how to use it? Does your wife know how to use it? Do you know where it's located? Also, this made me start thinking about these pillars of preparedness that we've outlined. You know, there's three pillars of preparedness that I've been talking about for years, which is your person or you as an individual, your vehicle or your mobility platform, and your home or your safe house. You know, these are three different tiers of capability. But also, it lines out specifically what you need in equipment in each individual pillar. For example, your person. And I'll just use med as the example. On your person, you always need to carry a Cat 7 Gen 7 tourniquet. They're $29.99. It's a piece of equipment that could save your life. You can get them at fieldcraftsurvival.com or anywhere. North American Rescue, the list goes on. These tourniquets inside of our inside the waistband tourniquet holder in your waistband or in your purse or in your purse or whatever it may be that you carry on your person needs to be with you at all times because the time in which you need a tourniquet, you need it right then and there and you only have potentially, if it's severe enough, minutes to live, maybe even seconds. So the idea isn't, oh, well, I have a tourniquet. It's in my med bag. Where's your med bag? What's at home? Well, that's one of the pillars, but you have to be prepared in preparedness with all the pillars. The pillars of preparedness are what hold your capability and preparedness up. And so when I'm looking at my mobility platform, if I have a tourniquet on my person, then I always want to extend and upgrade my situation by providing more, more skill set, more capability which typically means more equipment. So if I have a tourniquet on me, I want an aid bag inside my vehicle that's more robust. I might want to do, I want to have the capability to put a hypalon chest seal on somebody during a compromised chest wound. I want combat gauze. I want gauze to be able to stuff a wound. I want a compression bandage to compress that wound to stop the bleeding internally. I want eye cups for burns. I want some kind of burn bandage because around vehicles, it's typical that you could have a potential burn. 
I want some kind of rigid platform that could um, immobilize a or or splint a a wound or trauma. Um, all these things are going to be beneficial beneficial to you. And th- we're just talking about med, but now we could break out survival. If I'm carrying survival on my person, well, big lighter is a fire starter. If I'm in the middle of somewhere that's cold, I'm isolated. You better believe I'm going to have a minimalist Philcraft survival kit on me because that fits conveniently in my MERS. Uh, I use a Patagonia fly fishing bag, but it also allows you or affords you the ability to sustain life, which could mean keeping yourself warm, starting a fire, procuring water, you know, showing a signal of some sort for search and rescue. And then what does the advancement of that look like? Well, if I have a fire starter in my MERS that I carry, one side of my vehicle, I'm going to have a robust kit for fire. I might even have tinder um, or jute or something that's flammable, Vaseline, that allows me to kickstart a fire. And now when I look at my house, the house is the upgrade to all these things because it is your safe home, your safe site. So if I'm breaking contact from a bad situation, I need to have a home that's designed to be able to sustain life for an extended period of time. 30 days of food, 30 days of water. You want to sustain life, then you need to be able to independently and using self-reliance sustain your own life, not depending on the infrastructure or anybody else. So again, the pillars of preparedness, your person or you, your vehicle or your mobility platform and its capability, your home or your safe house, which is your safe house. I hope that helps you guys. So, hey, I'm going to go into questions that I got via the gram on um, the the latest um, questions that I had for the podcast. So, these questions all related all relate to uh, what's going on uh, in the tactical realm with the tactical review. So, I'll go right down uh, the list. Thoughts on 300 blackout versus 556. Completely different application and def- different round. We're talking about a heavy grain bullet that has a lower muzzle velocity and 300 blackout. But you know, if it's subsonic or if it's canned or uh, you know, if you're shooting big game versus small game, there's a whole bunch of considerations. Now, when it comes to self defense, 300 blackout versus 556. Well, if you're looking thinking long term survival, which you should be. 300 blackout, unless you have thousands of dollars to spend on hoarding that ammo and caching it, isn't probably the best application. You might want to look at 5.56 because there's more 5.56 by 45 millimeter or uh, AR-15s in circulation in America than any other weapon system. So it would be advantageous to have 5.56 because you could procure it off the battlefield. If you think like me, in survival and preparedness, and you think long-term, go with 5.56. What preparedness helps prevent you from putting all of your eggs in one basket? What preparedness helps prevent you from putting all your eggs in one basket? You know, I think you have to understand that really in any industry, any field of expertise, hell, even in business, to stay successful, you have to diversify. You have to be uh, diverse, and you have to be able to adapt and shape. What that means is if I put all my eggs in one basket, I'm not diversified. Obviously, I trip fall on my face. I just lost all my capability, all my assets. So having a way in which to use your network. I always talk about survival that the way you are going to survive is by depending on your network. You know, I talk about that sum of five, right? That sum of five is the five closest people to you are who you are. I mean, they, they literally create who you are. So when you look at those five people in your life, what do they bring to the table? What skill sets, what technical skill sets? Um, can they cook? Can they clean? Can they hunt? Can they fish? Can they, uh, you know, are they good at self-defense? Do they have technical skill sets? Are they a medic? Are they a doctor? Do they know how to make uh, or jar or canned food? Those things are important when you're looking at long-term sustainment. And then the breaking up 
of that, meaning the uh, kind of the dissemination and decentralizing your survival is important in that because you can't hoard all the assets or all the resources because you'll just run out. You're limited. But if you partition it amongst your tribe, amongst your sum of five, then it sets you up uh, for better success. So importance of survival, bushcraft skills, and our current culture. I think it's hugely important. I mean, when I drive around America traveling, teaching, I was just in Nevada recently outside of Las Vegas in a little place called Gene, Nevada. Pretty cool little town, some podunk shit in uh Gene, Nevada, but it's a, a really cool town. And, you know, has some old mining history, obviously, but it's so sparse and so off the beaten path. When you look at the terrain, there's like limited resources. But when you look at the terrain and you think about survival, how would you set that uh that terrain in your favor? Well, you could dominate the specific parts of that terrain by getting on the high ground, building your walls, and then Without resources, you would need to form. Um, you need you would need to figure out how you're going to farm resources, not just farming and farming, but I mean farming out um, and developing and growing and figuring out a way to sustain life. Bushcraft is one of the most neglected skill sets in, in in this whole game. Period. You know why? Because it's hard. I mean, have you ever done a bow drill? Have you ever tried to start a fire with sticks? It is the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, not only is it physically challenging, but it's mentally challenging because you're like, I mean, if this was a real life situation, I didn't make fire. And if I don't make fire, I potentially don't survive. Uh, that's some stress. Um, and, you know, and how I look at it too as bushcraft, it is the E, it is the emergency in your pace plan. You have to be set up. You have to be set up to have a primary alternate contingency and emergency in every single aspect, uh, including bushcraft of your life for survival. Yeah, lighters are cool until the propane runs out, right? Hurricane matches are cool until they get obliterated by whatever. And then what's your emergency? And your emergency typically is bushcraft. It's like rudimentary means of primal means of survival. And that needs to be in your repertoire of training. As technology enhances, as things start to unwind, unfold, you, you might see this. Um, I, I won't let the cat out of the bag where I'm going, but I will have an off-grid sustainable cabin in the near future on the border of Canada because I'm setting myself up for success. So any extra income or any things that I sell, I'm adding up, putting in a jar, and I'm getting set up to, to build an off-grid cabin in the middle of nowhere. What kind of beard do you recommend for your CQB? You know, if you're going to have a beard um, and you're Asian, because this came from Jared Kim, he's an Asian dude, I recommend a Fu Manchu. You know, we can't grow like a big burly beard, but a Fu Manchu, it has historical reference. Um, also, um, it has legitimacy in the Mongolian culture. Grow a Fu Manchu and you could free flow with the best of them. Best cold weather rain gear that can be worn under kit and not be too, bul too bulky. So here's a cool plug for Patagonia. I own Patagonia PCU, which is their cold weather version of the military uh, gear and equipment. And every layer, whether it's the base layer, the outer shells, all their stuff is very researched and developed. And I recommend Patagonia for everything. Uh, another good company, uh, big shout out. Um, to Arcteryx uh, as, as another good option. Uh, Patagonia, uh, obviously in my top three. And 511. 511 actually has some good gear as well. Uh, 511 is a, a lot more affordable than some of the Patagonia stuff. And I like the fact that you can go to any 511 store in the United States in any major city and actually get your hands on some of this gear and equipment. Recommendations for outside the waistband Glock holsters and rifle slings. I'll give you two. One, Safari Land ALS is my number one holster. I've had that holster for seven or eight years. No failings, no issues. Um, most reliable holster, uh, most uh, durable holster I've ever owned. Safari Land ALS. Rifle sling, 
There's a couple of them that I use, but I'll give you my two recommendations. One is a Haley Strategic um, rifle sling, which is a two-point. I always go two-point because I want to be able to lock down my, my gun or weapon system to my back or to my front depending on what I'm doing. If I'm treating a casualty, I don't want to put my gun on the ground. I'll sling it to my back and cinch it down. Also, VTAC. I have one of the original slings before VTAC slings were made by Kyle Lamb, Viking Tactics. Uh, one of the original slings from the organization that he worked at uh, that's made of tubular nylon and rucksack straps. And that is one of the best slings I've ever owned. Using all-wheel drive transmissions for a go-rig overland rig. Look, all-wheel drive uh, is a good option over rear-wheel drive or front-wheel drive. Uh, One of the best schools for training that I've went to is Team O'Neill's in New Hampshire. Big shout-out to Team O'Neill. It's a rally race car school. When I went there, I was training specifically for my job as a contractor, and we drove in the snow front-wheel or front-wheel, rear and all-wheel. Um, we used Audis, uh, all-wheel drive vehicles. I think front wheels, we used Ford Focuses. And then the rear wheels, we used something. I think it was a Beamer. Like it was actually a BMW. So I will tell you from experience in driving in all kinds of different weathers, going to a lot of race car schools, driving schools, BSR, Team O'Neill's. I mean, the list goes on. I've been to probably about five different ones, including Blackwater's Instructor Driver's Course. Um all-wheel drive in, in inclement weather is the best option to go with. The, the, it's night and day compared to front-wheel and rear-wheel drive, especially in mud, especially in snow where you start to lose grip and traction. Um, where it counts is around corners and the transition of power from one line of wheels or axles to another. Depending on the suspension setup, depending on uh, how the distribution of the weight of the car is, you could completely lose control, but all-wheel drive keeps more traction to the ground and is a better option than not. Thoughts on AK variant rifles? Look, gas tappet systems, typically AK-47s, I'm not the biggest fan of. They're not very accurate, as optimized as other platforms. I would rather so much a gas impingement. Look, they're reliable. Gas tappet is reliable. But the gas blowback, the uh, accuracy, inherent accuracy issues... I would so much rather have a gas impingement, a closed uh, uh, gas operating system, and maybe a 6.5 JP, 6.5 LaRue, or a 308 LaRue or JP, uh, JP rifles. Ideal length barrel for a truck gun 5.56. Uh, honestly, I wouldn't go any lower than 10 inches. Uh, some guys are running like 7-inch barreled guns. It's not necessary. Uh, you're, you're keeping it under 20 inches com- completely. Um, I, I like the 10 inch barrel, you know, you got the upper receiver and then a folding, like a, a law tactical folder. My triart gun is a 10 inch gun and it's perfect for me for a truck gun. It's the, it's the ideal length for me. I advice to get unprepared friends and family to prepare. Uh, that's actually a really good question. The one thing is uh, that I've realized in survival and all this stuff that we're talking about is if you want people to buy into preparedness, right? Because 20 years ago, you talk about preparedness and you're a nut job. You know, you live in a trailer in the middle of the desert in Gene, Nevada, and you have antennas coming off your roof because you're a prepper, you know, conspiracy theorist weirdo. Well, it's not like that now because modern survival, as we, especially with us, as we're redefining it, lends itself to being prepared in all venues from mindset to uh, having enough prescription meds on hand. What's so crazy about that idea? And so when you want to train somebody and you want them to, to get buy-in, you have to make it interesting. Like I tell people, you know, when you go camping, for example, instead of going camping and having all your, you know, your, your racks, your rucksack full of lickies and chewies and everything uh, at the REI uh, catalog and store, instead, Use our minimalist survival kit. Uh, Use our minimalist med kit and use those pieces of equipment to sustain life off of and make it interesting. Make it an experience. Get your whole family involved. You know, when when I teach uh, uh, fire survival for families, there's a pro word that you need to figure out, right? It's a pro word that you could 
tell a child and they react. It's an immediate action drill. Instead of them cognitively trying to reason or figure out a decision, you tell them one word and they you condition them to react to it. So if you say Irene, they know it means wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, get your butt up and run to the front door or run out the nearest exit and meet me at the mailbox. And then you turn that into a game. Uh, you turn that into a more interesting scenario. Something that has uh, been lingering in my mind, for example, and just listening to neuroscientists and people who are smarter than me on this subject, the way your brain works um, that's unique to us is we have a consciousness. We have this ability to be self-aware and this perspective where we can actually internalize or analyze what we're thinking, right? And so we have this way of reasoning things. But we also have a very, um, we have a unique perspective on how we think about our future by taking pieces of the past or present, whether it's bias or uh, biases or it's uh, experiences, and then applying it to predicting and modeling the future. This is a model rehearsal. That's the way our brains work. So if you sit down with your family and you're trying to get them interested in it, hypothetically communicate about the scenario. Hey, hey, honey, what would you do if somebody kicked in the front door right now? Oh, well, I don't know. Let's let's war game this. So I would run to the front door and try to barricade it. Well, that might be the wrong answer. What if they kick in the door while you're trying to go barricade it? Oh, well, then I would get the gun. Well, so are you going to get the gun first and then go check it out? Yeah, maybe I'll do that. Okay. Well, what you're doing is you're creating the scenario um, that you would rehearse mentally. And then you're basically creating the parameters for training. We have this whole isolate, rehearse, repeat thing, right? Where you isolate a specific event, in this case, running to get your gun and then confront whoever's kicking in your front door. And then you would practice it. You would rehearse it and optimize it. And then you would repeat it into its muscle memory. So now at the sound or the communication of somebody's kicking in the front door, then they would immediately react in an immediate action drill. Now, I'm not saying that this for everybody is going to make it more interesting and more likely, but it's better than not doing this because nobody likes a dictator. And what I've seen people fail at, you know, I've tr- I train spouses of guys that I work with because they like to dictate what they're going to do. Like, hey, honey, this is how you do it. This is what you do. Do this. Well, not everybody works that way. You need to work around uh, their specific personalities. Can I store ammo in arc bags and cars for extended times with temperature conditions hot and cold. Generally speaking, you could store ammo. I, I, look, I, the best storage for ammo is its original box containers inside an ammo ammo can, which is convenient, wherever they may may lie. Look, I've, breaking, I've broken open um, Russian and Chinese ammo that was decades old, that was in its original packing, uh, packing grease, and have worked through it and have had no issues. So this idea that somehow your ammo is going to expire as long as it's generally temperature controlled. I mean, I was pulling ammo out of a Connex container that was in the most extreme conditions of the Hindu Kush from snowing and sub-freezing temperatures to, you know, the hottest temperatures on the planet. So uh, the, the general rule of thumb is store it where you bought it and put it in ammo cans where it's waterproof and sealed and then it, keep it in there. The, the extreme swings in America aren't that extreme. The exception is obviously in Phoenix or something like that, Arizona, where you can get 110 plus degree temperatures, but you're not going to have the ammo sitting on your dashboard. Have it in a cool location like in your trunk um, or somewhere where it's not exposed to the direct sunlight and you'll be fine. How to carry extra fuel in a runner that's not all kitted up. It's easy, man. Uh, one of the best ways is a jerry can. Um, which is a metal can that has some history behind it. But what I've experienced with jerry cans, which is a metal NATO can, is that with the compression um, and, and inflation of uh, going up and down in elevation, I have seen those cans um, fail because they implode, explode, implode, explode. They they weaken the... Uh, the lines of that fuel can and you can run into issues. I prefer Rotapax. 
I have rotor packs in generally all the vehicles that I run. My FJ40 is the exception, my Land Cruiser. I have a jerry can on the back of my FJ40 because it doesn't really go to big, significant elevation changes. But I would run a rotor pack flat packed um, on top of your vehicle. If you don't have a roof rack, you could probably figure something out by putting it on the body. Uh, you typically have those roof rack bars. Just get a crossbar or a section or go to REI and pick up like a Yakima rack or run it off the back of your bumper. There's even bumpers now that you know, AEV, for example, sells a bumper that has uh, the integration of uh, water in your tank or water in, in the uh, reserve, but you can get creative with gas. The only thing I would say is do not store the fuel inside your rig. I've seen a lot of people kind of do that. That's a bad idea. You want that, especially with the, the changing in heat. It's not like ammo. With fuel, with the changes in temperature, it could put you in a, a bad situation. I remember once I was um, riding through the mountains of, of Colorado on my KTM 1190, an adventure bike I had, and I stopped at a gas station, and I had an empty tank, and I opened up my gas station, and I probably had a tenth of a tank left, and it completely exploded because of the pressure and dumped fuel all over me, all over my bike, and all over the gas station. It like People were freaking out because it looked like it was about to explode because it was gushing five feet over the, the motorcycle. That's because of the pressure changes. And you you put it in a container or vessel, you're going to run into that, that kind of circumstances. And, and you obviously want to avoid that at all costs. As a beginner, how to hone in and fine-tune all skills needed to be uh, assessed in any situation. Well, we talked about it. The isolate, rehearse, repeat. I, you know, I've told this story a couple times, but I've taught law enforcement and military all over the world. And when I teach them, I, f- I formulate the understanding of training through this idea that uh, really everything you're doing is isolated s- technical skill sets. That's it. So if you look like a hostage rescue, for example, or l- let's take something easier. Let's take CQB, close quarters battle, clearing a room. What's a whole bunch of individual skill sets? The only thing I'm doing is culminating it together. But how do you get really good at it? Well, you have to identify and isolate those individual skill sets first. So I'm holding the gun, so I need to be good at a gun. So before I need to start focusing on two, three, four man, uh, you know, collective task like CQB, I need to focus on my own individual skills as an operator. So I need to be good at shooting. I need to be physically fit. And the list goes on. And then as an individual, I focus on those skill sets. I could bring them together and then start isolating specific things like clearing one corner or one room and then move into multiple rooms and then progress as you go. You know, you don't progress until you've kind of mastered the basics of each individual skill set. So isolate it, rehearse it and optimize it, and then repeat it again and again until you commit it to muscle memory. And that's how you do it. And then after that's all done, you culminate with stress, which includes elevating your heart rate, um, a scorable target, taking, tracking your time, and then you figure out your deficiencies. And then you go back and you do it all over again. right? You retrain the deficiencies and it's a cyclic effort. How do you prioritize training and what kid is more important to start out with? You know, I, I think a lot of people beat the dead horse of, uh, we call them in the military kit whores, um, Look, you can go down a rabbit hole and kit, and it can get really crazy. What I recommend to you guys is don't just focus on the kit now. Focus on the basics. Like instead of buying a Gucci gun with Gucci holsters and Gucci kit built around that, spend the money on a decent gun and a lot of ammo and get a a lot of good practice behind the kit that you have. You know, there are exceptions to it. Med, Med kit, for example, is the exception. It's expensive, but you want to get the best kit. You don't want to half-ass your med kit. It's not like a, it's like the ideology behind a tattoo. You don't want to go into a tattoo shop and say, hey, give me a number three. Uh, oh, it's buy one, get one free. Give me a number three and a number five. You don't want to do that. So you get what you pay for. So focus on getting the proper equipment, not Gucci'd out, and then training that equipment again and again and again and again. Utilitarian rifles, improvements for rifles like the SR-25 for CQB. Um, look, utilitarian rifle, like, let me give you a little history on my ideas behind this. 
when I was in Iraq with Kevin Owens, he's he's our primary instructor for sniper long gun training. He's he's teaching the DMR course, the designated marksmanship rifle course that's next weekend, which is sold out. He's also got uh, dates in October, I believe mid October that he's teaching. Listen, a lot of a lot of the things that we did at war, we did the wrong way. Um, I remember we were trying to figure out how to run our SR25s. We were snipers, but we were still doing CQB and building climbing. So we were like, okay, well, let's run with an SR25 and a backpack. And then we'll have our carbines. And then we'll get to the rooftop. And then we'll take our bags, our, our long guns out. Well, then we started realizing if you're building climbing, that's almost impossible. Because then you have to carry a base load for your carbine and all the accessories. And then a base load for your SR25 and all your accessories. Well, that adds up pretty quickly. And that doesn't, that breathes well, but it doesn't execute well. So then we're like, well, why don't we just use our SR25s and use them in CQB? So we get offset J points and then we run and gun. And then we started realizing like, whoa, it's really difficult to clear. Um, it's real easy to clear one building, right? With an SR25. But you try to do the same thing with multiple compounds and multiple buildings. By the end of it, you're incapacitated. I mean, you're literally... Um, so smoked that you can't move on. So it's a lot of weight. And so then we looked at it and went, well, why is everybody running a long gun? We're rarely using our long guns because our standoff for containment is only a couple hundred meters. So we do we really need these long guns? So then we made an optimized battle rifle, which is a, a OBR. And what we did was we said, hey, if we optimize our 5.56 guns, make them a little bit more ca- capable get a better round. We used 75 grain Hornady's with 14.5 inch barrels, had L cans with, uh, you know, different uh, universal night sights and options. Then we could do everything. We could do CQB, clear through the house, then get to the rooftop, put on a universal night sight. And now we are designated marksmanship uh, or marksmen's uh, and designated snipers for the containment. Did we have the heavier rounds? No, we didn't, but we still had the capability. And that's kind of like the utilitarian view of it. Uh, you always have to adapt your equipment and tactics to your situation. I used to think there was like universal kit. Like, hey, if I had one piece of kit, it would be good for everything. Completely wrong idea. If you take a troop of special operations guys who are used to doing direct action hits and raids, and you put them in the middle of Afghanistan and with that kit, they'll fall apart. Because that kit is not going to be optimized for that environment. So you need recce rigs. You need to drop the body armor. You need to go to boonie caps instead of Kevlar. And so things change. So look at your preparedness game and the pillars of preparedness. And then figure out what those changes are going to be. Scenario. Legally CCW carrying on public transit and police canine boards. Should I be concerned? Um... So if you're legally caring, never be concerned. Like you have nothing to worry about. You know, I, I even talk to people when people ask me like, Mike, you know, if I go, like, let me give you a gr- great example of a scenario that I've ran into, which is uh, difficult for some people to navigate. You're with your family and you're in Arizona, right? Which is an open carry state. You're legally caring. Then you go out to eat with your family. You go out and you have kids and you have a wife and you're, you're in uh, board shorts because it's a hot day and you hit the front door and there's a sticker that says no firearms allowed. What are you going to do? Well, your car is parked two miles away. So you're not going to walk. So are you going to make a scene? Are you going to go up and ask somebody what's going on? Like, hey, is there any way you can get around this? Like, what are your actions? Well, my answer is, one, I don't want you to legal- I don't want you to break the law. If you don't feel comfortable with, like, I would never advocate for anybody breaking the law. But are you breaking a law? I mean, you're a law-abiding citizen that's going into an establishment that has a sticker on their front door because they choose to not allow anybody in their restaurant not to be armed. Now, I, I kind of get, you know, you go into Whiskey Row in Prescott, Arizona, and you're you're carrying a gun into a bar where everybody's drunk and and it, it could turn into a bad situation. Yeah, probably not the smartest thing to do. But you're law-abiding, you're with your family, and you're going to an establishment that has a sticker on the door. My best advice is do what uh, you do. But understand, what I'm doing is I'm not 
changing my lifestyle and the protection and defense of myself and my family over a sticker on a door because the manager doesn't like guns or the manager thinks that somehow guns are the problem. If you're a law-abiding citizen, you have nothing to worry, worry about. And then I give the perspective like, what, what if something happens? A guy comes in that store and he sees the sticker and he goes, I'm going to rob everybody in here. And you're the person in there to defend life. You're the sheepdog in quotations. And then what's expected? Are they going to prosecute you? I don't think so. And so I'm doing everything I can uh, to defend my life and that life of my family. And no governance um, is going to stop that. I mean, I am also a law-abiding citizen. I'm not running around with AR-15 strapped to my back either. You know, I just heard an interesting discussion uh, via some Instagram influencers about gun control. And, you know, there's some, some Democratic fringe operators who are coming out uh, saying, we're going to confiscate all the guns. We're going to take all the AR-15s and all the AK-47s. Oh, people can have their guns, but we're going to take in, those guns are guns of war. Not even knowing what the hell they're talking about. And, you know, there's, there's something that was brought up that I, I kind of wanted to throw at you guys because I, I, I'm coming on board now. I used to believe, and I still do, it's, it's, you know, I could still be swayed either way because I'm still learning more about it. But this whole uh, universal background check where the state of California on ammo and guns has created a database Without a doubt, the government of California has said they're going to use that database to target or to use as data points to target specific people who might be a danger to society. The problem with universal background checks is when the federal government gets involved. Let's say hypothetically one of these fringe actors gets elected and he starts a federal database that says, uh, every single gun that you've purchased and they accumulate all the guns you've purchased and put you in categories, which is categorically what they're trying to do. And they say, well, I mean, I can't even, like, I can't even comprehend what my name is going to be highlighted in. You know, magenta. If that's, the bat, if that's the most fringe color for the most fringe people, it's magenta. Because I have personally bought hundreds of weapons. Over the course of my, uh, you know, 30 plus years on this planet, hundreds, that is no exaggeration, pistols, rifles, shotguns, the list goes on, bought, sold, trade, and, and the list goes on. Well, what happens when you're identified just by a analytic, a piece of data that you're a potential threat? And then they're talking about cross-referencing, right? This is something that the Trump administration is doing through HARP, which is the health, um, research and development arm of DARPA. Uh, HARPA is doing research on potentially using Google analytics, social media analytics, and health record analytics to determine whether or not you're a potential threat to society. Or what are the markers for you being a potential threat to society? The problem with that is there's no context. I mean, historically speaking, these are the issues that we ran into uh, with the Germans, whereby we're, our ideology is forcing us to look at a particular race or a particular person with data points. And then the data points are associated with emotions or misunderstanding. Like all these people that have these many guns are crazy. Oh, oh let's correlate the data with med. All these guys were diagnosed with PTSD from the military, and they own this many guns, so they're a threat to society. And so you see where this is going. It doesn't take, there's not many steps leading to a really bad outcome. There's states right now that have red flag laws within their, within their states that are, that are enacting, uh, serving warrants, um, in some cases not serving warrants at all, with no due process, going after people's guns. There's even been reported cases of law enforcement officers shooting and killing men who, you know, these law enforcement agencies show up on their doorstep and say, give me your guns. And I don't know the, the, the totality of the circumstance, the specific circumstance, but you could see the, 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 uh, the precedent it's setting. The red flag law in most states 
allows a family member to come forward and then to seek uh, a judgment of them confiscating somebody's guns. And people have emailed me and, and written me on DM about this scenario, which is you, you don't even have to be processed by the justice system, local or federal. Um, they could just say, hey, you're a danger and we're going to come get your guns. And then you have to go through a six to 12 month process, according to these individuals that message me, to get your guns back and defend somebody else's word that's saying that you were crazy. So one, I don't know about anybody who's sane. Uh, I really don't. I mean, everybody on this planet's crazy in some form or another. So the scale in which we judge others is determined off of what? Now, we're not talking about mental health. We're talking about perceptions created by individuals who might have other alternative motives, ulterior motives. Like, I don't like this person, so I'm going to hook him up. So let me report him. And it happens all the time. I just saw a video recently where Walmart banned nationally a guy in Kentucky who was open carrying in a store because somebody reported them and said, the guy has a gun and he's acting suspicious. So I don't know about the reports on active shooters, but I don't think there's been any active shooters who have had open carry weapon systems that they've carried into stores and shopped with a shopping cart and then committed an act of violence. In most of these states, you can open carry uh, in, in, in a lot of these states. And again, it's the fringe. I mean, where is our country headed in 2020? What, what is going to be uh, the nature, right or left, of our country on the fringe? Uh, and that's the things that we need to look at and analyze and focus and depend on us to do it. Because I'm doing it every single day. Because I really care about the future of our country. The future of our survival as a nation. And uh, I'll be paying more attention to that. So I think that's it, guys. That's uh, pretty much it. I got a, a few more questions on here, but uh, I won't uh, beat a dead horse today. It's September 11th. Again, paying honor uh, and respect to the men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice on that day uh, in, in, in 2001 and 2012. Two major tragedies that have affected our our nation and the direction our nation has uh, taken uh, from here or from 2001 until uh, who knows, um, who knows where the end is in sight. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Tuning into our, our podcast, philcraftsurvival.com. Uh, make sure you check out at Phil, at Philcraft Mobility, which is our overlanding side and stay tuned for overlandtraining.com, which will be released in a couple weeks. I appreciate everything you guys do for um, our podcast. And I'm going to lead it into uh, our sponsorship. So if you don't feel like tuning in, you don't have to tune in. But I want to pay uh, attention to our sponsors who who do um, so much to strategically partner with us to keep us on the air. Our first po- uh, podcast sponsor is Black Rifle Coffee Company. Evan's a great buddy of mine, great dude, doing great things with Black Rifle Coffee. I saw him since the inception and kind of see him evolve over time. Uh, couldn't be more proud of Evan and what he's doing with Black Rifle Coffee. On top of all of his aspirations and how much he's inspiring everybody, he, he's also got some great coffee. If you're interested in uh, uh, some of their best coffee, I like the Black Schnook. I'm a, a black coffee guy. Uh, also, they give us a, a coupon code called Philcraft20 for 20% off on any checkout of any order, swag or coffee on blackrifflecoffee.com. Also, this podcast is sponsored by Killcliff.com. They support the Navy SEAL Foundation, which we're big advocates for. Also, they've given us a coupon code, which is Survivor Survival One Zero, Survival One Zero to save ten percent. They got a new CBD uh, energy drink coming out, and I'm super pumped about this because I'm a big advocate for CBD, as well as the fact that these guys are making energy drinks that are good for you. I use the Recover the most often because it has zero sugar, has um, uh, electrolytes and B vitamins, and it doesn't have a ton of the caffeine, all the bad stuff that uh, can potentially hurt you. So make sure you check out killcliff.com and use Survivor10. Also, this podcast is sponsored by triarchsystems.com, T R I A R C systems.com. Triarch Systems has been a strategic partner. Some good old uh, boys from Texas making great guns, custom guns. I run all their guns, I run my truck gun as a Triarch. Uh, 17 Charlie's a Triarch. My uh, everyday carry Glock 43 is a Triarch. Give those guys some love. Use Philcraft, one word, to save 5% on any build. If I was going to recommend any gun 
There's two AR-15s I would recommend. That's BCM, Bravo Company Manufacturing, and also um, that is uh, Triarch and their folder. Their their law tactical folder is my truck gun. So those AR-15s are the best AR-15s on the market. Make sure you follow TriarchSystems.com. Also, hey, wanted to give you a a big shout-out to all the guys at Summit Off-Road. If you guys are interested in doing any kind of off-road work to your rig, we talk about overland training and uh, overland rigs. Summit Off-Road in Prescott, Arizona. It's summitoffroad.com. Those guys, Jesse and the team, do great things. They're working on the FJ40 right now, trying to get it back on the road. Uh, Make sure you guys give those guys a follow. Um, Also, I want you to uh, pay attention to Abide Armory, A-B-I-D-E, armory.com. Those guys are right down the road. Uh, We've worked with them with all of our FFL transfers. If you want to buy a gun, any gun, and you want to have it shipped to you, and you want a discount on that gun, make sure you hit up Abide Armory. Those guys will hook you up. Go to abidearmory.com, give them a call, give them an email, and tell them Phil Krause sent you, and they'll hook you up. All right, guys, thanks a lot. I hope you... Uh, Have a good week and the rest of your weekend. Listen to the last podcast I did with Lisa Jaster, one of the first, one of the three female graduates from Ranger School. Really interesting podcast, really great person uh, to talk to. I appreciate all the support from PhilCraftSurvival.com. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive. (laughs) 